You're listening to Don't Waste Water. Maslow actually in the 1940s predicted what is happening now by saying that we all have been so accustomed to water being so easy here in the United States that once the frailties of infrastructure started to break down and we suddenly had regions where the water wasn't of quality and whatnot, all of a sudden, because we don't have the value for water because of this complacency that we've had, we don't know how to react to it. Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Twist Water podcast. I've had many mayors and many world leaders tell me that they're not aware of any politician in the history of mankind that ever got elected with votes for spending money on water. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Tom Rooney as my guest. Joe Biden is smarter than I am, but regrettably, I don't think that will turn out to be an accurate statement because there is a tsunami of problems moving forward. Tom is chairman and operating partner at Science Water. I think we bought 800 water utility plant operations, and of the 800, they've all been way out of compliance, they've all been bad actors and whatnot. Science is a research-driven investment fund that identifies uncovered, under-researched or misunderstood water sector opportunities that are undercapitalized. I cannot name one of my about 120 guests so far that would not have told me something during our conversation. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know how intentional I am about connecting the dots. Every single new episode, hence, has to bring us one step closer to the truth with a big T, given that this truth is a moving target and doesn't really exist. Yet, every once in a while, I collect a nugget that really shines a new light on what I thought I knew. It could be Paul O'Callaghan's take on the dynamics of water innovation by Season 3, Episode 3, or Reinhard Hübner's Water Company M&A Masterclass by Season 5, Episode 1, or Pierce Clark's debunking of the water pilot's myth by the first episode of this season 7, to only name three. Well, Tom's adaptation of Maslow's theories to the water field clearly belongs to this category, as all of a sudden it explains a lot of the undervaluation of water we experience every day. What is it? Well, I won't butcher the concept and let Tom explain in a minute. You'll probably enjoy as well how clear and explicit he is about the one challenge that's the root of all the other ones, and I'd bet you'll have as much fun as me listening to that conversation. If that's the case, all I ask is that you take this episode and share it with a colleague, a friend, or your LinkedIn network. That's the best way to support me, and I'd be grateful if you took a minute of your time to do it. Can I count on you? I'm sure I can. Let's meet on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Tom. Welcome Hi. to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm exploring a bit this world of science water to understand who does what and how all of that leads to all of us being together here to rethink water. So that's a bit what I'd like to explore with you in a minute. Okay. But let's start with that broad, open question. What is it that we have to rethink about water? That's a great question. Many things. What I was speaking about earlier today was the crisis in one city that's been in the news, that is to say Jackson, Mississippi, where a lot of people 
people become preoccupied with the pictures they see on television, right? Broken pipes, people carrying bottled water, politicians finger pointing and saying it's his fault or her fault. The message that we brought to this conference and that I talked about a lot with John Regis and Josiah Cox is the idea that we have to rethink what the problem really is with water. Yes, there are broken pipes and yes, there are systems that don't work particularly well, but that to resolve the challenges in water, it's really three-dimensional. And the three dimensions that we were talking about are infrastructure, so yes, broken pipes. The second dimension would be what I'll call broken economics, right? Or, or the inability to see the water crisis from the true economics that exist behind it. And the third is policy, public policy, or broken policy. And so what we talk about is the idea that to truly resolve the American water infrastructure crisis, you have to come at it in a three-dimensional frame of mind. So it's not simply asking how does one fix a pipe or a pump or a membrane or a filtration, but how do we fix the misunderstanding that is the economics of water? Mm -hmm. And how do we get the public policy makers to rethink how they frame water in the United States? And so governors pointing figures at mayors and mayors begging presidents for money is not helpful. And having the EPA which is a wonderful organization but an underfunded organization unable to impose uh, the regulations that already exist. Th those are failures of public policy. So you asked a simple question, but our approach and the reason that we're here, we science and I am here in particular, is to help the world and certainly American leadership understand that the only way that we're gonna truly fix something as large as the American water infrastructure crisis is by understanding it's really three-dimensional. What is this misunderstanding about the economics of water? That's a great question. And I think that's the single issue that creates all the other problems. And the answer to that is that most people perceive water to be free. You'll hear some people say, well, it rain, water falls out of the sky, God gave us, well, you hear all kinds of things, right? But at the end of the day, people expect that water is free or close to free. Very few people actually understand the true value of water. And if you don't understand the value of water, then you become irritated at being charged to get water. Having said that, a person who has gone without water, like someone trying to cross a desert or someone who lives in an impoverished city like Jackson, Mississippi currently is, they have a profound understanding of the value of water. But throughout the United States, and I would argue throughout the world, there isn't a deep enough appreciation for the value of water. What that does, what that causes is politicians are not willing to invest as heavily in the infrastructure to produce water because they know they would then have to charge for water. And I've had many mayors and many world leaders tell me that they're not aware of any politician in the history of mankind that ever got elected with votes for spending money on water. So that's this economic disconnect, right? It's the human understanding of the value of water. And it's easy to point out things like the average cost for bottled water is about $5 a gallon. Sure, you can buy Evian for $5 for a tiny amount, but generally speaking, the average value for bottled water is $5 a gallon. The average cost to produce tap water through American infrastructure is slightly less than one penny per gallon. So it's a massive difference. And yet people complain about the price that they have to pay for water, yet they'll buy bottled water. And so this all feeds back to the narrative that we humans don't actually understand how to value water. And so with that misunderstanding, you've got politicians that won't regulate it correctly. You've got utility leaders who won't invest in the infrastructure. It is the underpinning of all the problems in water is this inability to understand what water's true value is until the day you become desperate for it.
I'd rather talk about what the value is for water than have people have to go through the horrible experience that someone, say, in Jackson or Flint, Michigan, has got to go through. If you look back in history, before Perrier came to the United States and before their famous advertising with Orson Welles, yep. bottled water was looked at something which is not that clever and like a relic from the past where really you had to bottle water and you had special beliefs in special types of water. Right. Next year or this year, depending on the statistics, there will be more money spent on bottled water in the United States than on utility water. It's the first time that those two lines are crossing. To me, it sounds like the bottled water industry has made a brilliant marketing move. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's business after all, and they gained market share because they were good at marketing. So how can we as a sector get inspired by what they did right? Marketing. And, yeah, and, and market utility water the way it should, because I do get that for some places, bottled water is a solution because they simply don't have tap water. Right. But I don't believe that 80% of California doesn't have access to tap water from safe quality. And yet 80% of Californians don't ring tap water. So what you have to look at is what is the real definition of marketing? And to your point, bottled water companies have done a, a wonderful job of marketing. What they've done is they've stepped into the void of the incumbent industry, which is water utilities. So as an incumbent, water utilities produced water without doing any marketing whatsoever. So what's marketing? Is it a billboard? Is it a press release? No, it's actually understanding a value proposition, mm -hmm. right? There is a value proposition to fairly well anything that is sold, right? And so there is a value proposition for water that the incumbent, which is to say the water industry needs to address. Like what is the value of water? And that's kind of back to what we were talking about before. So it's a marketing opportunity for the water industry. Now, that's an industry that's not particularly well equipped for it because generally speaking, it's run by municipal leaders and regulators and so on and so forth. But if the incumbent, which is to say utilities, want to gain back the market share, then they'll have to compete in the same way that Coke has to compete against Pepsi, which is, tell me what you're offering to me. What's the value of the water coming out of my tap? And if you convince me, and by the way, what that value is, it, it needs to be clean, reliable, healthy, on demand, and it has a profound price differential, less than one penny a gallon versus $5 a gallon. So if the American water utility industry can make the marketing value proposition pitch that you can trust your tap, that it's going to be reliable, it's always going to be healthy and of high quality, it will win the battle. There will always be one small segment that will be fit by bottled water that tap water can't, and that is the convenience, right? There's a value proposition that bottled water has. So if I go out to play tennis on a tennis court, I can't bring my tap with me, Absolutely. right? I can't bring my shower head, but I can bring a bottle. Well, that's a tiny niche. Or if I go camping in the mountains, a tiny niche. We have to remember there is a good role for bottled water, but it shouldn't be anywhere close to what the utility is. So the American water utility industry and all of our players, we need to start putting our marketing hats on and talk value propositions and then rise to the challenge and produce that value. Isn't there also a psychological bias element to it? Because there's this body of work produced by Richard Shotton about the behaviors we have in certain circumstances. And he was bringing forward a study on a craft beer in the UK, I think, where the slogan was reassuringly expensive. Yeah. Like if you really pay your water below one cent per gallon, how good can it be? Right. That's a branding thing, right? So if I was to give away jewelry for pennies, 
you would, even if it was solid gold, somehow your mind would say it's not valuable because if I sold it to you for so little. So a lot of luxury brands sort of artificially increase their price so as to signal value. I get all of that. I do think the better study to think about would be Abraham Maslow and Maslow's mm, yeah. theory of human motivation, right? Which is interesting because Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, the first rung, you've got uh, food and water and security and what have you. What's interesting is there's a rung below that, which is oxygen, but no one thinks about it. I thought of Wi-Fi, but okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so Maslow in the early 1940s posited this. And, and I actually, I literally just read his seminal paper over the weekend. What's interesting about it, and it's highly relevant to water, is he says, yeah, okay, so there's this ladder, the, the hierarchy of needs above the, the basic needs. You get security and love and on up through realization of yourself and so on. But we're, we're really talking the bottom rung, right? And like I say, there isn't a rung beneath it, which is oxygen, but there should be, right? Because absent oxygen. But here's what Maslow says in the second half of his paper. That hierarchy needs actually changes situationally. If you take a person who's spent their entire lives struggling for food, for calories, in desperate situation for 20 years, ultra poor person, that person's hierarchy of needs actually will cap if you can just give them food security. So in other words, after enough time of fighting for something you can't get, just getting that and knowing that you'll securely get that for a long time, that actually satisfies that person's need. They actually don't need to go any higher. Mm -hmm. The converse of that is if a person has lived in an environment where either the food or the water or air is universally available, too easy to be had for decades on end, the person becomes complacent as to the value of that. Mm. Okay, so here's where it's relevant to water. That's what has happened in the developed world, certainly with Americans. We've had generations, 50 years of knowing that we could always go to our taps, there was always water. And so Maslow's hierarchy of needs was sort of gutted as, as relates to water. We lost the perception of the value of the water because it was always there. We never had to struggle for it. We could always get water at the tap. It was always clean. It was always good. So Maslow actually in the 1940s predicted what is happening now by saying that we all have been so accustomed to water being so easy here in the United States that once the frailties of infrastructure started to break down and we suddenly had regions where the water wasn't of quality and whatnot, all of a sudden, because we don't have the value for water because of this complacency that we've had, we don't know how to react to it. And that's what's happening in the United States right now. So somehow, take it really from a French perspective, okay. but there would be positive things in a Flint event or in a Jackson event because all of a sudden something was just taken for granted. Right. I'm not saying it's positive that people lost their lives not at all that's not my point it's rather at some point we needed an awakening and maybe absolutely that was a very costly awakening but still it can serve like that if we allow it to be used like that so to your point it's a tragedy that happened in flint it's a tragedy that's happened and happening in Jackson, Mississippi. The only way to make that tragedy worse is to not learn from it. We can't go back and fix Flint before it happened. We can't fix Jacksonville before it happened, but we can learn from those two events and try as hard as we can to have fewer events in the future. Joe Biden is doing a wonderful job of running the United States right now, but he was quoted a few weeks ago as saying, what happened in Flint, Michigan and what happened in Jackson, Mississippi can never happen again. Joe Biden is smarter than I am, but regret Incredibly, I don't think that will turn out 
to be an accurate statement because there is a tsunami of problems moving forward. A better way to think about what President Biden said would be, we must learn from Jackson, we must learn from Flint and eliminate as much of the possibility of those things. They're going to happen, but we need to dig in and ensure that we've done every single thing possible so that when the next Jackson or the next Flint happens, and inevitably they will, we'll at least be able to say, we learn from Jackson, we learn from Flint, and we did the very best we could to mitigate going forward. I had, a bit before you on that microphone, a student which is here at the conference as a volunteer, and she said that when she entered the conference, she was like, I'm fully for the public. I don't want private people to touch my water. And, uh, and right, right. I recognize that line of thought because I've been studying water engineering and I'm a second generation water engineer. I've heard that all my life. And what she said is that listening to the people here in the conference, she got convinced that there's a better approach combining private and public. If you won one with the conference, is the conference already a success or how many people do you need to convince about these private-public partnerships? One of the panel members with me was the CEO of our company called CSWR. And that's an example where private sector dollars, we completely own and operate water utilities, including a half a dozen or so in Mississippi that were as badly broken or worse. What's interesting is when we show up in a state as private money, private equity money. And we say that we want to buy badly broken water utilities in a particular state. We want the worst actors you have, and we want to show what the private sector can do in terms of management. I think we've bought 800 water utility plant operations, and of the 800, they've all been way out of compliance. They've all been bad actors and whatnot. We put to work in a blended sense. In other words, the state regulators don't simply say, it's yours, do whatever you want. They have a, a tremendous say-so, and how the rate structures are set. There's all kinds of rules about the quality and the outputs and whatnot. We're now 800 in a row proving that the using the commercial skills and talent of the private sector have been able to fix more utilities than the incumbent utility operations. Here's the analogy that I would give you. American industrial skills and abilities are an amazing force to be brought to bear, but they need to be guided. So the analogy or the metaphor would be a race car. If you're trying to develop the fastest race car, you want to put an engine in it that is of immense horsepower. That's American industry. That's private sector. The government's role is the steering wheel, the tires, and that which sits around it. I wouldn't give the whole race car to the private sector, and I definitely don't think the government should be the whole race car. I think American industry should be the engine that propels the car with immense speed, but government, economic regulators, and quality, you know, health and human concerns. That's the best of both worlds. You use the word blend. That's the blend that I would think about. The one thing that government is not particularly strong at is optimizing systems in terms of the spending of the dollars and things like that. That's where private sector is best. But citizens expect the government to sort of protect it. If you will, my metaphor is get the most horsepower that you can, but steer it with the government. That's the blend. To round our discussion, because I have to be cautious every time at some point, is it a swear word to say that investing in water can be profitable? No, absolutely not. How do you bring that message across? I graduated from the University of Chicago School of Economics, and, and I'm a firm believer in free market forces and whatnot. And so the way to bring the interest of industry and commerce is to have a profit motive, but it can't be an unlimited, ungoverned profit motive. Greed is not good in this case, but if you try to set a situation up where the private sector has to simply follow the rule book that the government sector did and just 
with all of the bureaucracy involved, it, they won't optimize anything, right? So the private sector optimizing will, will actually create enough value such that the end customers perceive much greater value after the private sector is there, but not so much that there's this guilt sense in terms of profit taking. But if you don't have a profit motive, you really don't have a commercial motive. The key is to maintain the balance and be able to bring a lot of capital to bear and a lot of efficient capital and to have a lot of tenacious entrepreneurs trying to find a better way. Candidly, you look at NASA. NASA is literally, historically, one of the greatest engineering accomplishments in the last 100 years. But there are private sector players now that are showing that, you know what, they can actually do it more efficiently than the government. So there are plenty of examples where the private sector harnessed in the public interests is better than the public interest by itself or the private sector by itself. It's that blend, best of both worlds. It's the story of the Wright brothers, which made a plane to fly with literally no means when right. there was a government project with a lot of funding, which failed. So not saying that it's an universal truth that one is much better than the other, just saying that- Best of both probably, worlds. Yeah. I have a crystal ball question. If you look forward in the next five or 10 years, what is your metric to say that you had a positive impact? Oh, that's a great question. So I've been in the water industry for 20 years and it feels like Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill. To be candid with you, I'm not entirely sure that in five years you'll see a massive shift. It'll be mostly a mind shift. It'll be a mind shift around the value of water, the utilization of the private sector, the engagement of the EPA and, and other agencies creating what I'll call accountability. To me, it really doesn't matter who's owning and operating and managing the water utilities as long as somebody is accountable. If in five years that accountability could be brought to bear in the water sector, I think you'd see a whole lot of the problems we have today. So maybe it's a piece of that and a greater awareness of the value of water. Subtle, but important. To round off these interviews, I have a series of rapid fire questions, okay. which aim for short answer, but right. I'm not cutting the microphone. Nope problem. The first one is, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? Four years ago, we launched Central States Water Resources, and it's just been a spectacular success. It's gone from a tiny water utility to the fastest growing water utility in the United States, 12th largest investor owned. It's the White Knight, great success story. And I act as chairman of the board of Central States Water Resources. Science owns it. I couldn't be more proud. We have three other companies now that are in the water space, and hopefully those will be as successful. What is the one thing that you're doing today in your job that you won't be doing in 10 years? Or oh, 10 years from now, I may or may not even be working. So <laughs> how about that? That's a good answer. <laughs> well, Tom, thanks a lot. It was a fascinating deep dive with you. And I think your Maslow analogy is one of the most brilliant things I've heard okay. in a while. That's so very I really, kind really of you. love it. So good. thanks a lot. Thanks, my <laughs> pleasure. This is it for another episode of the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'd like to hand out a special thanks to Science Water for enabling it. And if you enjoyed it, make sure to give it a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast from. I don't know if I deserve five stars, but my guest surely does. Do it now, tell it to your friends, and I'll be back very soon with the next interview.